Welcome back to the Medical Republic Pandemic Update. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Today we've got our amazing COVID-19 live blogger, Bianca Nogredi, back on the show. Uh, Bianca, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. So after weeks of very low transmission rates in Australia, we've seen the numbers start to tick up in Victoria. It really doesn't look good. Um, So is this the start of the second wave? What's going on, Bianca? It's really hard to tell. I mean, I guess we don't have a definition for what a second wave looks like. Um, You know, really the only thing we've got to compare it with is sort of previous pandemics like the Spanish flu, and that was quite a long time ago. So, um, I mean, what's clear is there is definitely um, a massive amount of community transmission happening in Victoria. So Victoria has been recording, you know, upwards of 50 new cases um, a day for probably, I think, the past week. Um, And almost none of those are in return to travellers, whereas in New South Wales, there's been um, you know, around five to ten new cases a day, maybe a bit less than that, um, and they're all almost all in return travellers. So um, it, it does suggest that there is a there's obviously a lot of community transmission going on in Victoria. Um, the Victorian government is instituting, as, as uh, everyone probably know, is instituting uh, kind of lockdowns in suburban hotspots. Um, they're implementing a massive testing blitz. So um, from what I understand, just in terms of reading the commentary around this, you know, they're, they're doing all the right things um, to try and get a lid on this before it gets out of hand. So, um, yeah, it's I think it's really just a case of seeing seeing how this plays out. But I think this is where the gaps in our understanding of the kind of um, um, the course of disease become really evident. So, for example, we had a report today where um, a worker at the uh, Woolworths in Balmain in Sydney tested positive. Um, So this person had actually travelled from overseas uh, in late June. They had arrived um, in Melbourne, they'd been quarantined in a hotel in Melbourne. They developed symptoms while they were in quarantine. So their first positive test was actually day seven of quarantine, but they were released on day 14 of quarantine. Um, I'm assuming that people don't get released from quarantine unless they test negative. I'm not entirely sure about that. But then, so this person was released basically seven days after they tested positive in quarantine. Um, they then flew into Sydney and started work. Uh, they developed symptoms again, they were tested again, and they were found to be positive. And this does remind me that there was a study that was done in China where, um, or it might have been Taiwan, I'm not sure, They, because they have these kind of mandatory um, post-hospital discharge quarantine facilities. So these are actually, so people who are discharged from hospital who test negative, um, they've had they've had COVID-19, they've tested negative, they're discharged from hospital, but they're not allowed to go home. They're basically discharged to special quarantine facilities and they have to remain there until I think it's to a minimum of two weeks. But um, this particular study took advantage of that fact because these um, people who are in this kind of post-discharge quarantine are then also retested for COVID-19. They're monitored for symptoms. And so what it revealed was that there was a, a small but significant number of patients who even after having had their two you know, consecutive negative PCR tests 24 hours apart uh, when they were discharged from hospital, would then retest positive whilst in this post-discharge quarantine. And in not just once, there were some patients who were then retested two or three times as being positive. Some of them also then um, re-presented with symptoms again. So it suggests that there's some kind of latency happening with this virus. I mean, maybe it's just that the testing isn't, you know, that it's always there and the testing isn't picking it up. Maybe it's that it disappears from where we are testing, like the nasopharyngeal areas, but it's still in the body, um, 
And so then it reemerges, or it you know they become positive in those kind of tested zones of, of nose and back of the throat. Um, but the fact that people then you know represent with symptoms again, um, which initially I think was one of the the things that prompted the notion that you could get reinfected. But I haven't seen anything more on that. So it does, um, and I haven't seen a genetic analysis you know suggesting whether this is exactly the same virus that they're, that that they're kind of you know, being tested positive with again. So there's a big unanswered question there about really is this virus a lot more long-term and when we have this notion that a two-weeks quarantine will solve the problem. Um, but really there's, I think, emerging evidence suggesting two weeks is is not – two weeks and two consecutive negative PCR tests is not enough to ensure that that person is then completely and utterly free of SARS-CoV-2. Um, so, it, you know, this is a really – tricky time and um you know i mean the outbreaks in melbourne there's been a lot of outbreaks in uh, quite a few cases that are associated with hotel staff and guards at the hotels where these people uh, return travelers are quarantined um, despite the fact that there's obviously cleaning regimens being implemented so i mean there are so many unanswered questions really about the persistence of this virus not just in the human body but on surfaces outside it and i think until we have the answers to those questions we kind of are uh, I guess running a bit fast and loose with our approach because those are pretty big gaps in our knowledge. Um, and I think the, the impact of those gaps is perhaps starting to contribute to some of these these kind of cases slipping through what we thought was a fairly tight net. Yeah, and it's really feeding into those questions circulating now in the community about keeping the borders open with Victoria. I know that a lot of uh, people in New South Wales are quite concerned uh, with the continuous approach of having that border open, considering that, I mean, I myself have seen a lot of Victorian number plates uh, on the freeways in New South Wales and at school holidays at the moment. Yeah, questions remain over that infection control mm. in Victoria yeah. and kind of some of the stuff-ups that have happened recently. Yeah, and I think it's also important to keep in mind, I mean, I know that there's a lot of kind of Victoria bashing going on um, and this idea that, you know, this disease thing, but... Um, from what I've seen, again, with comment, kind of commentary online, you know, this was just bad luck on Victoria's part. I don't think there's anything that they've done um, necessarily that's that's kind of put them in this position of being, um, of suddenly having their second wave. You know, it could have been New South Wales, it could have been ACT, it could have been any state. Um, I mean, obviously, Victoria has a lot of return travellers, as does New South Wales, but, you know, how much those have contributed to this problem. So I think, you know, it, it really is... Um, I think it does show that there is still so much that we don't know about this this virus and this disease, um, and what we don't know is potentially going to going to contribute to second waves and deaths. So, you know, hence the need, the very very urgent need for as much research as is possible uh, to try and get a lid on this. And on that same topic, Bianca, what do we know so far about the level of individuals who may be infected with SARS-CoV-2 and remain asymptomatic for extended periods of time? Yeah, another really, really important question because when we still are relying, in terms of our testing approach, we still are relying largely on people with symptoms to come forward. Um, you know, there's no provision for testing people who are who have no symptoms because there's always a risk that you have false positives um, or false negatives. And so, you know, the the advice and certainly I think the data sort of suggests that wide, uh, kind of widespread asymptomatic testing or screening isn't 
justified. I mean, that may change, but um, but so, you know, there's been a lot of studies trying to quantify exactly how many people who test positive to this virus are asymptomatic. And um, this particular, this latest study uh, comes out of the US. Um, of It was in nine age, long-term aged care facilities. So, you know, you're looking at a higher risk population because they're um, going to be older. Uh, they're probably going to have a lot more comorbidities. So, you know, generally a higher risk population. But there was nine, nine of these facilities. They screened 938 residents and staff um, with RT-PCR, so not serological tests. Um, and these facilities were picked because they'd all recorded at least three positive tests in residence. So they, they knew that they had, they had SARS floating around. And they found that the overall prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection was 70%, which is, I mean, staggeringly high. But what was interesting was about 40%, I think, of those were asymptomatic. Uh, and there wasn't necessarily, I mean, there was a, a slightly higher rate of asymptomatic, I think, in um, female residents compared to male residents. But, I mean, that's still a, a staggeringly high number of people who, you know, are testing positive to the presence of viral RNA and have no symptoms. So, you know, for me, and again, not being an epidemiologist or public health expert, that does suggest that there, there is such a risk of there being this reservoir of disease in a population that we can, and you know, unless we do test everybody, we're never going to pick up. And I mean, I think there's also been some data suggesting that asymptomatic cases are less likely to transmit, uh, to transmit the virus. Again, you know, I've only seen a couple of studies to that effect. So it may be that, yes, you know, these people are asymptomatic, they are testing positive, but they may be less likely to to pass the, um, the disease on. But again, a whole lot of, we're not really sure on this one. And there were some cases out of uh, New York this week um, uh, about those strange incidences of hypertension and inflammatory events in children. What do we know about that? Yeah, so this is the, um, the sort of Kawasaki-like syndrome or Kawasaki disease, um, which there's been various reports that have cropped up in the journals since this pandemic began. You know, there were kind of very isolated reports very early on, and now we're starting to see, you know, getting up towards hundreds of cases reported here and there. Um, and it's essentially, it's a multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. That's what they're calling it now. Initially, it was like, is this Kawasaki's, which I believe is also associated with viral infection. Um, but they've now given it this particular label. Um, most children present, prevent with, uh, prevent, sorry, present with fever. There's a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms. Uh, there's hypertension and shock, severe cardiac illness or other severe end organ illness, rash, conjunctivitis, um, other kind of skin and GI features. Um, what's interesting with these cases is that these kids don't always test positive for either for um, SARS-CoV-2 viral RNA using RT-PCR or for antibodies. Uh, or at least in terms of the kind of um, uh, serological tests. Uh, so the, there was this one particular study. It was a report from a network of New York hospitals. They had 99 cases of these uh, multisystem inflammatory syndrome. Um, 77 of those patients were tested for the presence of IgG antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, um, and 99% of, of them came up as positive. So it does... Um, it, they've obviously had exposure to the virus. They're not necessarily testing positive to viral RNA, but um, they are, they've obviously been exposed, or there's certainly the suggestion that most of them, if not all, have been exposed to, to the virus. 
Um, and it, I mean, it's it's a serious condition. I mean, four fifths of the patients, admittedly, this was a hospital based study, so we don't know about the kids who might have had this but didn't go to hospital. But four fifths of the ones who did go to hospital were admitted to intensive care. Ten of them ended up on um, on ventilators, um, and two of them died. And the um, analysis of the two deaths suggested that there were kind of complications, um, inflammatory complications, um, coagulation complications, and even neurological complications that um, that might have contributed to that. But I, I mean, again, it's you know, there, there's a link there, but it's difficult to really establish it uh, beyond all reasonable doubt because the fact that these kids um, and, and many of them had been exposed to COVID-19. They'd had COVID-19-like symptoms, but not all. So there is, again, another kind of gap in, in our, our kind of uh, in the picture of what's going on with these children. And there's also some other bad news out of the US this week, a hint that the actual death rates from COVID-19 are far higher than the fatalities originally reported. Is that correct? Yeah, and this is a tricky thing. So I... Um, my understanding is that there has been, uh, you know, globally, regionally, whatever, there's been a decrease in um, some kind of hospital admissions, so like an accident and emergency because people aren't driving so much. Um, but then when you start looking at excess death rates, which is basically the difference between the observed number of deaths in over a time period and the expected number of deaths based on historical data, um, there's huge increases in excess deaths. And I think that's pretty much around the world. But what's fascinating with this particular study, so this was again out of the US, um, and they estimated that they, they looked at the period from the 1st of March to the 25th of April. So really when the pandemic, well, one might say when the pandemic is at its peak, but I think in the US, it's still peaking. Um, and in that time period, there were around 87,000 excess deaths. Um, from a total of expected around 500,000 deaths during that period. So only 65% of those excess deaths were directly attributed to COVID-19. What was interesting was that there was a significant increase in the numbers of non-respiratory deaths. Um, And when they actually looked at the five states with the highest numbers of COVID-19 deaths, these states also showed the largest proportional increases in these non-respiratory deaths. So we're talking about diabetes. So for example, in those five states, deaths from diabetes increased by 96%. Heart disease went up by 89%, deaths from Alzheimer's, interestingly, which may relate to the kind of um, cerebrovascular kind of contribution, I'm not sure, but those deaths from Alzheimer's increased by 64% and deaths from cerebrovascular disease increased by 35%. But when you look at, I mean, when you look at the charts that show, you know, the kind of the the curve of COVID-19 deaths, the curves of these non-COVID um, deaths track really closely, not necessarily in terms of numbers, but in terms of the shape of the curve. So it does beg the question of why are these people dying? What are they dying? Um, are these deaths peripherally related to COVID nineteen? Is this you know the you know the fact that we know there's associations with kind of comorbidities like diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Um, so are these patients dying from dying from those comorbidities? Uh, because they've been exacerbated by a COVID-19 infection, which hasn't been reported. So it's, you know, it's really difficult to tease apart. And then there's also the potential contribution from the fact that, um, you know, so many people would not have gone to hospital uh, because they would be afraid of getting COVID-19. Maybe they weren't even able to go to hospital because they were so sick. So again, you know, the, this is where the data about sort of out of um, out of hospital deaths becomes interesting because how many of these patients are dying at home because they can't or won't go to hospital. So again, these are, these 
these are the sort of studies that are starting to really hint at a much bigger fatality rate than the official numbers would suggest. And, and I mean, I think there was even some data in Australia, um, which we reported on, I think, last week, also pointing to the fact that there may have actually been significantly more deaths directly or kind of indirectly attributed to COVID-19, even in Australia. And what's happening with uh, remdesivir? It, it seems like the US is hoarding this drug. This is, I, I do find this funny. I mean, it's tragic and it's sad and it's, it, it, yeah, it, <laughs> I think it's a sad indictment of the the way that the kind of um, health pharmaceutical kind of complex operates. But so first of all, we had the news. So remdesivir is this antiviral that Gilead developed, I think it was about eight years ago. And I think initially it was hoped it would have some um, efficacy with Ebola and didn't turn out to work. Um, so they've kind of had it parked on the shelf for a while. And then we've had all of these kind of announcements that, oh, look, it, it may have a benefit in um, in COVID-19. Then um, so it's sort of been touted, uh, particularly in the US, by um, as being you know the dr- the only drug so far that seemed to have done anything in COVID nineteen, which I think has statement has to be heavily qualified because the data so far it doesn't suggest that there's any benefits in terms of um, reduced mortality or, or greater survival. What it does seem to do is shorten the duration of hospital stay. Um, I think the, the main study that's looked at that, which is the NIH study, it shortened it from 15 days to 11 days, um, but only in patients who were, uh, so not in ventilated patients, so not in the most severe patients, and also patient, not in patients who required no respiratory support. So there's a kind of a sweet spot, I guess. Um, but anyway, so back to the original story. So Gilead has now announced that they're setting what some might call an exorbitant price for this antiviral. So it look it racks up at about um, 755 Australian per dose, which works out to be um, perhaps around 4,500 for a single patient. Um, now, this is a little galling, particularly in the US, because the initial... Uh, research that led to the development of remdesivir was publicly funded research. Um, so it's uh, and also an in, there's been an independent analysis that suggested that the company's costs um, of develop you know doing the R and D on this could easily be met. They could easily be compensated for this discovery by charging around one quarter of this amount. So it smells of profiteering, but then it gets better because then the United States. Uh, Health and Human Services Department announced yesterday that it was basically requisitioning almost the entire global supply of this drug for the next three months. So effectively, it means that there would be none left for anybody else in the world. So like Gilead has um, said that it's going to um, partner up with generic manufacturers in um, in lower income countries to make it available there. And I think I did see an announcement yesterday float past suggesting that they would kind of give, they would they would make, um, make sure that Australia had access to some of it. But it's basically half a million doses of the antiviral the US, the Trump administration has purchased. So that's all of July's production and 90% of what will be produced in August and September. And this is for a drug that you know, there's a there's a narrow kind of band of patients that look like they might benefit from it, um, and that benefit does not appear to extend to mortality. It just shortens the duration of hospital stay from the data we've got so far. So, I mean, it, it just it smells bad. It just smells bad, <laughs> and it looks bad. But yeah, what can you do? 
And what's the latest with the serological tests? Well, this is uh, goes back to what we were talking about earlier with, uh, you know, these kids with the Kawasaki-like syndrome, the multisystem inflammatory syndrome, and the fact that I think it was something like a third of them showed that they had antibodies, but then uh, um, some had, most had IgG antibodies, and this is where we get to the limits of my uh, immunology knowledge. But um, there are a lot of serological tests and assays that are being used around the world, and there's a heck of a lot of studies um, that are using those tests to try and estimate the true prevalence of, um, of COVID-19. The problem with this is that there's a study that's uh, a systematic review and a meta-analysis in the BMJ that suggests that there are actually major weaknesses in the evidence base for these serological tests and that their diagnostic accuracy may not be anywhere near what is, I guess, being assumed, shall we say, when they're being used in these research contexts. So uh, this analysis looked at 40 studies of a a range of um, serological tests. The first thing is half of these studies weren't peer-reviewed. Obviously, you know, peer review is not a perfect system, but it's better than nothing. So half of them weren't peer-reviewed. Only 10% of these 40 studies involved outpatient populations. So, you know, if you want to be using a serological test or any kind of test, you really want to test it in the sort of environment in which that test is going to be used. Um, and only 10% of these tests, uh, these studies involved, I guess, what you'd call a more typical uh, testing scenario, namely outpatients. Uh, it didn't necessarily go into detail of how it was used, but presumably in a much more controlled clinical, probably in-hospital environment. Um, And also very importantly, less than half of these tests stratified the sensitivity of the tests um, according to the time since the onset of symptoms. And again, this is really important because, and I've got to be careful because I'm not an immunologist and find immunology absolutely baffling, but I mean, the the levels of these antibodies um, will increase over time, but they, you know, they only sort of start, some of them only start to emerge you know, two or three weeks after the onset of symptoms. Um, Some of them start to wane within a certain period after the onset of symptoms. So the time when that test is done after the onset of symptoms is really important in terms of the diagnostic accuracy of these tests. And so if the tests aren't um, stratifying their results according to that time frame, then we're missing a very sort of key piece of that puzzle. Um, And the other thing is there there were 17 of these tests that are supposed to be point-of-care tests, but only two of the studies actually tested them at point-of-care. Again, same problem. You're not testing them in the environment in which they're going to be used. Um, This analysis found that 98% of the studies showed high or unclear risk of bias in their patient selection. Um, Many of them, the studies didn't actually kind of weren't clear about um, what the cutoff values were for a positive test or a negative test, um, they weren't necessarily pre-specified. So it's kind of like you're making up the rules after the fact, which isn't necessarily good. Um, so there, you know, and I mean, some tests suggested were better than others. So for example, I think um, enzyme-linked immunosorbent assays or ELISA assays seem to be a bit better. Um, but, you know, they were looking at different types of antibodies. Um, it, it's there's really, again, so many more questions about these serological tests, about whether we should be using them, how we should be using them, you know, which patient populations, when, what timing, uh, it's so many unanswered questions. So I think, you know, anything 
to my mind, and again, you know, again, I always qualify this, not an immunologist or an epidemiologist or a public health expert, but it feels like anything that's relying on serological tests at this point is kind of building uh, a bit of a house of cards. Um, you know, as far as we know, sort of RT-PCR, which looks for actual viral DNA, is um, the most effective or the most accurate way of diagnosing um, COVID-19. But, you know, until we start having kind of head-to-head studies and we start answering some of these outstanding questions like the timing of a test, again, a whole lot of unknowns. And our pandemic isolation appears to be making us less active. Um, what do you think is going on here, Bianca? Why are we um, not getting up and moving as much? Well, I suspect because we're all working from home and uh, those of us who might otherwise be, you know, commuting part or all of the way to work and walking some of it, um, going to the gym while we're at work, um, aren't doing that anymore. And so, um, and speaking as someone who has always worked from home, <laughs> I can I can safely say my step count is pretty much exactly the same. But this was a study that looked at the de-identified data from 455,000 users of a smartphone health app. And uh, so this was data from the 19th of January to the 1st of June. It was across 187 countries. And it found that within 10 days of the pandemic being declared, there was about a 5.5% decrease in daily step counts, not a huge decrease, but then within a month of it being declared, there was a 27.3% decrease. So we basically, our average daily step counts dropped by around a quarter within uh, within a month of the pandemic being declared. And um, because they had so many different countries in this, they were actually able to look at the impact, not only of the timing of, um, of lockdowns, but the nature of lockdowns. So for example, in Italy, they had a, a pretty strict nationwide lockdown. And so they found that there in, in Italy, daily step counts decreased by nearly half. So 48.7%, uh, whereas Sweden didn't have such a strict lockdown. They really uh, put more emphasis on social distancing and on limited gatherings. Um, so there, the step counts only decreased by just under 7%. Um, So it does really show the impact of these different um, kind of COVID-19 measures on the levels of physical activity. But I mean, having said that, I know some people sort of said, well, because they were at home more, they actually got out for more exercise. You know, they didn't have to spend so much time commuting. So um, I think it's uh, obviously these are all just averages. Within that, there'll be quite a range of people who suddenly became instant and total couch potatoes uh, and other people who started doing, for example, the Couch to 5K app, which um, <laughs> I seem to see a lot of people are like, you know what, I'm home, I'm going to learn to run. So um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a mixed bag, but it's interesting just seeing that kind of temporal relationship between step count drops and the pandemic being declared. My solution to that is to walk to the coffee shop and do my daily commute walk, like to go get coffee. Yes. <laughs> it's, very, it's a good incentive for everyone out there. <laughs> Thanks so much, Bianca, for joining us again. Uh, That's it for today. But if you'd like to hear more from us, you can subscribe on Spotify or iTunes. Just search for The Medical Republic. And thanks for listening.